University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. So I really have saved the best apothem for last. Uh, before I get to it, today we are wrapping up our apothem series, eight short sayings that will change everything. We've been looking at the power of phrases such as yes, help, no, thank you, I see in you and hear. And there are so many great apothems that we simply will never uh, have the chance to get to. Like Winston Churchill when he said, it has been said that democracy is the worst government except all others that have been tried. Or Yoda's, there is no try, there is do or do not. Or Descartes, I think, they, therefore I am. But as we turn our attention to Exodus chapter 2, verse 21, let this pearl of wisdom sink into your ears. It is what it is. Loads of people have been credited with originating this phrase. However, whoever said it is not as important as what is said. It's a state of potential, reality, of unabashed recognition. It is a statement of acceptance, whether the circumstances are beneficial, detrimental, or neutral. It is what it is. And these are the facts of the circumstances that the main character of our text, uh, when we arrive at this major turning point in his story, if you recall the story of Moses, he's born into the home of a Hebrew family. Moses' family chose to give him over to the fate of God by placing him in a basket and sending him down the Nile River. For at this time, Pharaoh was killing all the baby boys of the Hebrew people because they had grown strong in numbers. And he's found in the Nile River by none other than Pharaoh's daughter, who raises Moses as her son. And during this period of the new kingdom of Egypt, the empire stretched as far north as modern-day Syria, south of the Gulf of Alden and the Iberian Sea, and west in the, the area of Libya, and east in the ancient land of Canaan. And this was a time of thriving where the prince of Egypt would have had every opportunity and luxury at his fingertips. The finest education, clothes, military training, food, and power. Growing up as a prince of Egypt, Moses eventually learned of his true lineage. So when he was forced uh, the labor and subjugation of the Hebrew people, Moses snapped one day. He killed a taskmaster who was whipping a Hebrew slave too fiercely. And out of fear for his life, Moses ran away into the countryside. There, in hiding, uh, he met a man named Jethro who allowed him to work the land and tend to his flock and sheep. And Exodus 2.21 states, Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a land, a foreign land. Can you imagine this, this drastic change in life circumstances? Can you imagine going from being a, a prince in the most powerful empire on earth with every opportunity at your fingertips to the revelation that you are not an Egyptian, but a Hebrew, one of those slaves in the empire. Can you imagine going from the privilege of the palace to a murderer on the run? Here we find Moses, in his own words, trying to figure out 
who he really is. The struggle is, is very real as we see Moses name his firstborn Gershom, which means stranger, exile, or sojourner. Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. See, the struggle of finding identity can be a common human experience. When, when someone no longer feels categorized themselves as in the trappings of their family or the upbringing or their nationality or ethnicities, and that's a difficult place to be in when you have all of these stories and experiences and relationships and you're not sure who you are. But really, the question of identity is an attempt to ask an even more challenging question. In Douglas Adams, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a scientist of another planet create a supercomputer. And it's so great and powerful and wise, the scientists create the supercomputer to ask it but one question. It is the end all to be all of questions. So the question they ask the computer, we want to know the answer to life's most ultimate question, the answer to life, the universe, and everything as we know it, something simple. The computer simply asks the scientist to give it some time to think about the answer. In fact, it takes seven and a half million years to formulate its response. And after this exorbitant amount of time has passed, millions of people gather around the supercomputer. The scientists approach it saying, have you found the answer? The answer to life's greatest question, the answer to life, the universe, and everything as we know it. Why, yes, the computer responds. The answer is 42. 42? 42, the scientist responds. What does that have to do with anything? How is 42 the great answer? To which the computer responds, well, it would have been much more simpler if you had actually asked a question. You see, throughout history, one of the greatest questions that humans have asked is, what is my purpose? Why do I exist? See, we're all hungry for meaning, for purpose, for a feeling that our life is worth more than the sum of its parts. And we inevitably know that we want meaning in our lives and, and meaning that will help us thrive, but rarely do we stop to ask, why do we need purpose? How does purpose affect us? And what even is purpose? As organizational guru Simon Sinek put it, very few people can clearly articulate why they do what they do. By why, I mean your purpose, your cause or belief. Why do you exist? Why do you get out of bed every morning? And why should anyone care, let alone you? Most people understand how and what they do each day, but not why. Purpose is what a word and action and concept is, is all about. It's meaning, it's significance, it's a definition. And as Senate goes on to write, most of us live our lives by accident. We live as if it happens. Fulfillment comes when we live our lives on purpose. You see, the challenging aspect of all this is for far too many of us in our lives, it's overshadowed by our meaning and our purpose. And like Moses, life throws us all sorts of challenges and disappointments and disillusion and misgivings that can cloud our understanding of why. And if you've ever experienced dreams being shattered, relationships gone sour, the pain of betrayal, then you know what I mean. Not getting that job that you wanted so badly, or getting fired from the job that you love, or divorce or separation and marriage, or being victimized or suffering trauma clouds our mind. Making bad choices, feeling a string of consequences fogs our future. 
the death of a, a loved one, a, a bad diagnosis, a, a, a sustainable, significant physical setback creates confusion in our life. And the question of why moves back in our minds to give way to the overpowering question of how, when, and what. And as we look back at Exodus chapter 3, verse 4, we learn that Moses' absence from Egypt, a new pharaoh rose up and placed even harsher mandates on the Hebrew people, and the people were in anguish. One day Moses was out tending his flocks when he came across an unusual sight, a burning bush. And, and Moses, being the curious fellow that he was, he decided to take a closer look. And that step towards that burning bush changed his life forever. Exodus 3-4 reads, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. You know, when you look at this story with fresh eyes, then you can only see the absurdity of this moment. Not only is this bush on fire and not burning up, but then the bush speaks Moses' name. And I love how Moses takes this in stride by responding as if it was normal to talk to a bush. <laughs> and the story continues in verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? You can imagine that Moses is cruising along in agreement with God as God goes through the list of problems in Egypt and how the Hebrew people are suffering. But then God states that I am sending you to take care of this. And that's when Moses throws on the brakes. Moses had legit reasons to be insecure, and you can just hear his thought process. Let's get a couple things straight, God. I'm a shepherd now. No longer a prince in Egypt. I am a fugitive in Egypt, a criminal and a threat to the throne. I am a Hebrew, one of the people that are being subjugated. I haven't forgotten already that the Egyptian pharaoh is the most powerful ruler in the most powerful kingdom on earth. You know I've got speech issues, and my stutter, my stammer, and let's not forget that I'm talking to a burning bush. See, Moses' response to God is legitimate. I'm not good enough. I don't have all the answers. I can't talk in front of others, let alone in the court of Pharaoh. I'm not just qualified for this, so I'd like to stay here where it's safe and I'm unknown. See, Moses had legit reasons to be insecure. But will Moses' insecurity keep him from doing something extraordinary? The exchange between Moses and God goes this in verse 12. And God said, I will be with you and this will be the sign to you that I and the one who sent you. 
When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. What a fascinating response from God. I am who I am. God says God's name here, Yahweh, which means apparently is a derivative of the Hebrew word to be or means something like I am what I am or I I will be what I will be. God is proclaiming that God's very existence is existence. There is no existence outside of God. God it conveys a, a cosmic and existential power, is, is compelling and empowering, and sending Moses out of this obscure desert and into the Egyptian empire. But God is doing much more than this. By identifying who God is, in turn, God is giving Moses identity and purpose. I am your creator. You are my created. See, while Moses is wallowing in his obscurity, God comes to him in the most fantastical of ways to give him identity and purpose. God was inviting him, not out of obscurity, as if living in this quaint shepherd community of living in simplicity didn't have a meaning or purpose. Not so. For for one of the greatest purposes of why we exist is to live in community with others, to care for God's creation, and to enjoy life. And God's message to Moses is a message that we need to hear in our lives. You are created. You are loved. And all the expressions of human religiosity and philosophical thought, we are striving for great wisdom and experiencing transcendence. And yet, here is our creator giving us purpose amid our obscurity. This could quite possibly be God's greatest gift to our feeble existence. So consider why God's purpose for us matters so much. As one psychologist put it, we're not sure exactly where meaning comes from. It is inherent or if it is real at all. What we do know is that humans flourish when they have it and suffer when they don't. There's a growing body of research that showing that people with a strong sense of purpose in their life tend to be better on numbers of different measures of mental health and well-being and even cognitive functioning. And several studies also show that people with a higher purpose in life tend to engage in healthier behavior, which results in better health outcomes. A 2010 study published in Applied Psychology found that individuals with high levels of uh, eudaimonic well-being, which involves having a sense of, of purpose along with a sense of control and feeling what you do is worthwhile, tend to live longer. As the Australian neurologist put it, those who have a why to live can bear through almost any how. It's like God created within us the capacity for purpose and meaning to thrive. Did you ever see the movie Everest that came out a couple years ago? It's about one of the worst storms that uh, struck the highest place on earth, leading to the death of dozens of climbers who were trying to mount the summit. See, every year, hundreds of people uh, try their best to receive one of the few coveted permits to hike Everest. And just a perspective, Everest stands at 29,032 feet above sea level while Baton Rouge stands at 56 feet above sea level. 
slight change. And those who are awarded the permit spend anywhere between 28000 to 115000 to experience this. And I would guess that there is no price out of range to experience getting to literally the top of the earth. You see, for many, when we think about finding meaning and purpose, we think we have to do something grand, like hike Everest. But what if finding the answer to why requires no great travel or amount of money? What if God created us to find meaning and purpose in everyday moments of life? Uh, we can find meaning by creating work and accomplishing some tasks. We can find purpose by experiencing something fully or, or by loving someone else. We can find meaning by being a part of something more than ourselves. We can find purpose by growing and learning. We can find meaning by celebrating our God-given strength while acknowledging our weaknesses and shortcomings. We can find purpose by understanding that there is a being that is far greater than we can ever experience, but that loves us fiercely and desires that we find purpose. Stop and consider how you found meaning and purpose in simplicity. I've quite literally traveled the world seen a lot of different things. And yet when I think about the things that give me meaning and purpose, I think about things like my family and my vocational calling, going to work every day knowing that I'm a part of something that's bigger than myself, finding love and living life with someone in companionship and partnership, co-creating life with someone else and nurturing those two lives. You see, sometimes meaning and purpose doesn't have to be all that complicated. The human experience is a gift from God. It is a God-given way to experience meaning and purpose, such as finding friendship and falling in love and giving birth and celebrating the arrival of grandchildren or mentoring others. God gives us daily moments of reconciling or reuniting with people that we have strife and discovering something new, the opportunity to start a new chapter. God gives us ways to experience meaning and purpose through understanding the depths of our emotions and expressing our feelings for others and receiving the variety of feelings from others in return. God gives us ways to experience meaning and purpose through discovering the beauty of life and creation and expressing gratitude and experiencing gratitude of others. God gives us purpose and meaning when we can create new things when we could face difficult situations, and even when we slip into the simplicity of life. See, sometimes it's not something cosmic that gives us purpose, but something quite simple. Growing up as a child, I was obsessed with outer space, so I listened to and read a lot of Carl Sagan. And there's one particular work of his that stands out to me that I'd like to read for you this morning. It's called The Pale Blue Dot. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it is everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was and lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, 
hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there. On the moat of a dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is very small stage in the vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all the generals and emperors so that in the glory and triumph they could become momentarily masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel, of the scarcity of distinguishable inhabitants of something of another corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusions that we have of some privileges positioned in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck of great enveloping cosmic darkness. There is perhaps no greater demonstration of the folly of human conceit than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and to cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. So as we turn to the cosmic nature of our existence on a cosmic scale, May we remember that a cosmic God spoke us into existence, not as some pointless fleck of stardust in an endless void of space, but as living, breathing creatures with meaning and purpose. Or as 1 John put it, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Of all the great mysteries of life, of our galaxy, of the existence, and essence is the power of love. Love that gives us life, love that gives us meaning, love that gives us purpose. The love of God reminds us of why, beckoning forward in faith. So will we respond in faith this morning? Let's enter into a time of reflection and response.